I'm Trish Curley, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. Our guest today is Carrie Fowler. Carrie Fowler was the executive director of the Global Crop Diversity Trust from 2005 to 2012 and has been a senior advisor to the organization since 2012. The trust, which was mandated by the United Nations, works in 90 countries to ensure the conservation and availability of crop diversity for food security worldwide. While executive director, Dr. Fowler worked with the government of Norway to build an international seed vault in Svelbard, a kind of frozen Garden of Eden, which now maintains the largest collection of seeds from around the world. The Norwegian government built the Svelbard Global Seed Vault, and the Global Crop Diversity Trust has funded its operation since it opened in 2008. Fowler and the Seed Vault are the subject of a documentary film entitled Seeds of Time, which is available on Netflix. In 2015, President Obama appointed Carrie Fowler to the Board for International Food and Agricultural Development. Carrie, thanks for being here today. Thank you. It's great to be with you. While I was studying up for this conversation, I obviously watched the film Seeds of Time. And I don't know if you said it or it was written on the screen, the statistic that 93% of the fruits and vegetables that existed in the United States 100 years ago are now extinct. That's right. It's Well, it's a pretty high uh, percentage. And um, crop by crop, the it, that's the way it is. We've lost a lot of that diversity of varieties that we were growing um, back in the 1800s, early 1900s. So if you look at the apple varieties that were being grown in those days, we had literally thousands of different apple varieties. I once did a survey myself and found 7,100 different varieties of apples being grown in um, in the United States in the 1800s that were cataloged by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And they had names, uh, and 6,800 of them are now extinct. So we've lost a lot of varieties of crops, and with that, diversity. So we've got about 300 varieties of apples in the United States well, currently. Well, we, we have more varieties than that uh, now, but of the ones that were grown back in the 1800s, only about three or 400 are left. So why are the plants now extinct? I think some of us would guess, mm-hmm. but I, I'd love to hear your response to that. Well, I think the big reason is simply the modernization of agriculture. So as modern plant breeding took hold post-1900 when Mendel's laws of, of heredity were rediscovered, you, you've had the rise of the modern seed uh, industry. And seed companies want to sell their seeds to farmers. And they do a good job of that. And they produce seed varieties that farmers want to buy and want to grow. And frankly, we want them to, to grow some of those modern varieties because they're very high yielding. But what happens when they adopt those new seeds? They cease growing some of the older varieties. And when they cease growing the variety that they may have been saving generation after generation in their family, um, what that really means is they might take their last uh, portion of grain that they were going to use as seeds for planting next year, and they might put it in the pot and make porridge out of it. And when that happens, a unique variety and any unique genetic traits that that variety might have had become extinct on that day. So this is a strange kind of situation where one scientist said it was akin to taking uh, stones from the foundation in order to repair the roof. We want 
uh, agriculture to be modern and productive, but we also want the biological, we have to have the biological basis upon which it's, it's founded. And one of the unintended consequences of modern agriculture is the loss of diversity. What's the difference, or is there not, between hybrid seeds and genetically modified organisms? Well, you know, to some extent, all of our domesticated crops are genetically modified. Human beings have been selecting them and um, presiding over their evolution since the Neolithic 12,000 years ago. Hybrids are a combination of two inbred lines. It gets kind of technical, but uh, hybrids came into being really primarily in the, in the 1930s. Genetically modified organisms, uh, GMO crops, are, are something different than that. They typically involve transferring um, a gene from uh, very often from a different species into one of our domesticated crops. Now, having said that, nature does that too on occasion. <laughs> so the, um, the bread that we eat today, for example, the wheat that we have today, if it were created today through GMO technologies, it would obviously be a GMO. But because it's a combination of two, perhaps three different species, sort of accidentally, uh, randomly, many thousands of years ago. So I, I guess what I'm saying is that there are different ways of, of um, creating new varieties of our agricultural crops, which simply means new combinations of genes. And some of them involve very exotic high-tech um, methods, and they involve moving genes that probably wouldn't be moved uh, even in a million years between uh, different organisms or species, but some, some would be. I would imagine that you have some opinions about GMOs, but I don't know what they are. Uh, good. <laughs> I try to keep them hidden. Uh, well, Do tell. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny. When, when I was the head of the Global Crop Diversity Trust, our, our mandate was to conserve and make available crop diversity, comma, in perpetuity. And that comma in perpetuity was what hit me in the face the first day I was on the job. I mean, I thought I had a long history of work in this field, and I really thought I knew what conserving crop diversity meant. After all, I was now the head of an organization with the international mandate to do it. I better know what it means. But in perpetuity? Wow, that's a wrinkle that... Um, it, you know, when that's the mission of your organization, that's your, essentially your job description, it causes you to think in a very different way. So when it came to the GMO debate, I said to myself, you know, this is a debate we want to stay out of for two different reasons. One is, how does this relate to in perpetuity? And I just said to myself, you know, I, at this stage in my life, at my age... <laughs> I don't really feel too confident that I know what kind of agricultural system we're going to have in this world 500 years from now or 1,000 years from now. That was my planning horizon. <laughs> we're going to have some system. I don't know what it's going to be. Is it going to be GMO? Is it going to be non-GMO? Is it going to be some GMOs and some non-GMOs? I don't really know. But what I do know is all those systems require diversity. <laughs> and so I thought, this is a fight I want to stay out of because those, those two sides, the pro and the anti, are so 
so at each other's throats, frankly, um, that there ought to be room in the world for at least one small group of people. And my organization had a huge mandate, but it has small staff. <laughs> you know, when I took it over, we had like five people or six people, and we had the world on our shoulders, at least we felt like we did. And so I thought, there, you know, we ought to be able to work in peace here <laughs> and do our work. And 500 years from now, we'll figure out who was right on this issue. <laughs> there was a New Yorker magazine article that I read from 2007, August of 2007, and there was a quote in the, in the uh, piece that said, hunger today is not only the result of the scarcity of food. It's also caused by a growing global export system driven by foreign agribusiness, which is replacing traditional sustainable agriculture led by small farmers. And this speaks to, I think, what you were talking about before about the impact of, of agribusiness. Yeah. It's my understanding that this tension between local farmers around the world and the big business of agriculture led to what was known as the seed wars of the 1980s. What happened? That was a, that was a complicated, pretty tense period. When I started work in this field, one of the things that I wanted to do was to try to convince policymakers in particular and general public as well that um, conserving crop diversity was a good thing to do. And, uh, you know, we very often said, you know, this crop diversity is valuable. We meant by valuable that it was useful, that it was important. We didn't necessarily mean that it was valuable in terms of dollars and cents because I thought of the crop diversity, which well, I thought of it as a common heritage of, of mankind. Um, and it seemed to me that anyone who – any person or any country that wanted to claim responsibility, ownership over this crop diversity, which in some case, or cases originated before the nation state was founded, was being a little bit cheeky. <laughs> And yet there were a lot of moves to uh, quickly to privatize this resource and to make it the subject of intellectual property rights, which we were told would, would be an incentive for innovation, like all patent laws are supposed to be. But like many laws, it has its downside too, its unintended consequences. And one of the, one of the things which struck me as, as being a little bit out of kilter was that while there were laws that allowed some people to claim ownership um, and benefits over certain kinds of crop diversity, i.e. modern varieties um, bred by modern scientists. The work that the farmers had done traditionally in select in domesticating and selecting this material and producing the raw material for modern varieties, that work was largely unrecognized. And developing countries got to be fairly hot and bothered about that. And there, there came to be a lot of struggle in the UN system and, and even nationally in a number of countries over rights, responsibilities, compensation, and these kinds of things. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the victim in all that was cooperation, which we definitely need in this agricultural world of ours because particularly with climate change, we, we live in an interdependent world. While you were growing up in Tennessee – you yes. spent summers with your grandmother, I heard, I read, yeah. who introduced you to gardening. She did, yeah. What, what do you remember from that education of, that she uh, gave to you about gardening and seeds? And Oh, gosh. Um, 
I, I got many important lessons from her. First and foremost was her view that, um, that farmers were to be respected and that they were public servants. We, we typically think of people that work in government and politicians as, uh, as public servants. She, she viewed agriculture as a public service and she had great respect for other farmers. So that was maybe the most important thing. Right up there with, um, with basic lessons in life about integrity and, and, and trust and how you, you know, how you live your life, how you treat other people in the farming community, which is really, in those days, really was a community, <laughs> and you really did help each other. From a technical standpoint, my gosh, when I was first going to my grandmother's farm, it was not a mechanized farm. It was a fairly large farm, but it was uh, the power was mules. <laughs> and I remember when the first tractor came, and half the mules left <laughs> that day. Um, but we used to be able to drive out in the countryside, and she could point to land in the springtime and say, look at that soil. Uh, that's going to produce so many bushels of corn. And, and so I, I didn't realize it at the time, but she was teaching me to be a farmer. Um, and I think to this day, uh, nobody would be able to sell me bad land in western Tennessee because I can just look at it <laughs> and tell and your parents were not farmers. No. Uh, this is my maternal grandmother. And so my, my mother grew up um, both in sort of the city and the, and the farm. Uh, my father was not. He grew up in the city. He was a judge. And um, What city are we talking about? Memphis. Okay. Yeah. But when he retired or even before he retired, uh, he and my mother bought a small farm and moved out to it. So they – they went in that direction. My mother was a dietitian, so so there was traditional public service in my family and food interests, both agricultural and on the plate. <laughs> You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Trish Curley, and our guest today is Carrie Fowler. Fowler is a senior advisor to the Global Crop Diversity Trust, which funds the operation of the Svelbard Global Seed Vault in Norway a mere 800 miles from the North Pole. The vault holds the seeds of many tens of thousands of varieties of essential food crops, such as beans, wheat, and rice. These seed samples are duplicates of seeds stored in banks from around the world and are intended to conserve seeds that otherwise may be lost due to climate change and other disasters. When you went to grad school for sociology, First of all, you got your Ph.D. in Sweden, and I was curious about how that happened. Mm -hmm. And then I have another question related to your Ph.D. Okay. (laughs) Well, we're talking about pre-Internet days. So, you know, in those (laughs) days, word of mouth spreads. And I had uh, friends at my university in Canada. I finished uh, university in Canada on the West Coast. And uh, I had a friend that was in graduate school in Sweden. He said, it's good here. And I applied to a number of graduate schools in the United States, and I just decided at that point I'll go to the best school I get into, and it seemed to me the one in Sweden was the best, so I, I went off. But my my career, my history is really not not um, um, understandable by by looking at sort of academic timelines because I I really got interested in the field that I'm I've worked in all my life um, long before I finished my PhD, and I sort of um, Put the PhD on the back burner because I didn't didn't need it, and um, and frankly, if I 
pursued the PhD, it would have been an interruption in, in the work I really wanted to do uh, until the moment came when I realized that the next step that I needed to take um, involved getting a particular job, which I actually was offered, um, but, I, but I had to have a PhD for that. And so I quickly had to, had to finish. Um, I had already finished coursework and done a lot of the research for the dissertation, just hadn't written it up. When did you officially get the Ph.D.? Ninety-two, four, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because your Ph.D. dissertation was in biological diversity and intellectual property rights and ownership rules for crop diversity in agriculture, which seems like it would be very relevant to all the things you've been doing oh, over the last 25 years. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, okay. <laughs> it is relevant. But they wouldn't have let me do that and get a, a Ph.D. in sociology 10 or 15 years before the field had broadened at that time and become, I would say, a little bit more interdisciplinary, or at least it had at Uppsala University where I was. So what was possible then was not possible before. And, and it was a great experience to to go through it. But yeah. In the mid-90s, uh, I think you referenced this before, you worked with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, where you produced the UN's first assessment of the world's crop diversity. Right. What prompted this effort? Part of it was prompted by the seed wars that you mentioned earlier by all the um, the turmoil around this issue. And I think the governments of the world realized that, that <laughs> frankly, if they wanted to fight about crop diversity and the ownership and control and exchange of, of availability of crop diversity, they better know something about crop diversity and, you know, how much is there and where is it and what is the – uh, what's the state of this diversity? I mean, a lot of it, some of it hasn't been collected. A lot of it has been collected. It's in seed banks. What, what's the state of the seed banks? So they wanted somebody to come and uh, oversee a, actually a multi-year process and a country-driven process really involving 150 countries to figure out where, where do we stand with this resource? I mean, it, you could argue that this is the most it's the most valuable natural resource on Earth. I think it is. At least I know that life on Earth wouldn't exist in any very um, pleasant way for us human beings if we didn't have the diversity of our agricultural crops because then we wouldn't have any agricultural systems ultimately. So uh, it was a pretty important resource to figure out. And, and I was invited to come head the secretariat that, that did the research for this. I thought at the time that um, you know this might be um, a multi-million-dollar educational plan for me because <laughs> I wasn't sure where where this process was going, but I knew I was going to learn a lot. Well, what were <clears throat> some of the assumptions going into the assessment if it had it had never been done? Mm-hmm. What did you think was going to come of it? Well, I knew it was going to lead toward it was supposed to lead towards a global plan of action an agreement between all these different countries about what they would actually do. So in a sense, the state of the world's plant genetic resources, that was the title of the big report, book-length report that we did, that was going to be a problem statement. It was going to show, tell us what we know about the resources, but where are the problems? You know, are we doing a good job But in some areas, but where are we doing a bad job? What are the problems? A bad job in what? In conserving the material. I guess my assumption was that things were in better shape than they were. I mean, there are a lot of institutions around the world that call themselves seed banks. And at least prior to the financial crisis in the United States, you might think a bank is a safe place to put something. 
and in this case, a safe place to put seeds. The more I looked at seed banks around the world, and I think I've probably visited more than any living human being, oh my gosh, you know, I would go home at night and think, oh, we're making some dangerous assumptions about the safety of this biological resource. Tell, tell us more about that. Give us, give us some examples that come to mind that are really vivid still to you after 20, oh, 25 years almost. Well, you know, to conserve seed, you freeze them. So if I'm going to a seed bank, I want to check to see that the freezer is working. And I remember going to one seed bank that had three freezer rooms, walk-in freezers. Two of them weren't working, and um, they cannibalized the uh, the compressors, the equipment for those two to keep the third one working. I remember going into one in another country where, um, you know, typically you put your coat on, even if it's a tropical country, you put your coat on as you enter the seed bank because it's going to be like minus three Fahrenheit. I put my coat on instinctively when I got inside. I took it off. I wasn't even thinking about it. And then I started sweating and I realized, oh, this is a tropical country. And the freezing unit is totally on the blink. And they had put a seed dryer cabinet, which is a, a piece of machinery that you would use to dry seeds before you would freeze them, inside the freezer room um, in order to reduce the humidity in the room, even though it created more heat in the room. I went to one gene bank, which was locked with a padlock, but they couldn't find the key. I mean, I could go on and on. <laughs> But things were in pretty, pretty desperate shape. And, I, and part, there are many, if you were going to search for, well, who's responsible for this? You know, it's sort of the grapes of wrath. Who do I blame uh, for this situation? Yeah. Well, part of it was the government for providing such poor funding. I, I remember not that long ago going to a seed bank where or it was during this period that had an annual operating budget of $2,000. Um, that included the salaries of the people. Well, you know, what are you going to get for that? And part of it was there are hundreds of these seed banks around the world. And if I go to a scientific conference even today and talk about this situation and I say, so there are on the UN's list, technically, 1,700 seed banks. Do you imagine that there are 1,700 good seed bank managers? If I say that to a scientific group, you know what happens? Laughter erupts <laughs> because there are probably not more than a dozen or 15 good seed bank managers in the world. So you have seed banks that are caring for the most precious natural resource on earth, underfunded, poorly staffed, vulnerable to equipment failures, accidents. They get in the middle of civil wars and civil strife and bombing raids and uh, floods and fires, everything that can happen to a building happens to a seed bank. The only difference is that, you know, if a library burns down, we we usually don't literally lose all of the books. In other words, there's another library that has one of those books. But with a seed bank, we were often losing it all forever, every last copy, every variety becoming extinct, you know, just like a, a dinosaur is extinct. We'll never see it again. And that meant that we were losing traits, individual traits that could be essential for agriculture in the future. And they were just being taken off the table. And I say, well, you know, this is kind of like an artist. 
where you have a palette of colors and you say paint a picture, paint an agricultural system, and you want all the colors on your palette to do that. But you continually take away colors <laughs> and you get down to only one or two colors. Well, that kind of limits your options. It limits the future for you. And that's what we've been doing with our agricultural systems by losing this diversity. So in the report that was produced as a result of this multi-year effort, what were some of the uh, results? Uh, what I, hear, what mm-hmm. I heard you just say is about 1% of this, about 1% of the 1,700 seed banks around the world are actually in pretty good shape, yeah. but only 1%. Yeah. So as a result of the study, as a result of the report, what has, what has come about? Well, um, in a roundabout way, I think it it did lead to the uh, creation of the Global Crop Diversity Trust and to an agreement, sometimes a little bit begrudgingly, amongst countries that we would move towards a rational, efficient, global system. And what that meant was instead of every country in the world, including the poorest countries of the world, having their own standalone system, that we would move towards a more um, cooperative system that would involve a division of labor. So if you want – let's face it. If you want um, a seed bank to conserve diversity essentially forever, you want a seed bank that can – is well-funded and is in a politically stable place. And the seeds don't care. Seeds don't care which country they're in as long as they're treated properly wherever they <laughs> wherever they happen to be lying. So we don't need a seed bank in every country as long as every country has access to the seeds that other countries have. So we needed a cooperative agreement that would allow the United States to get seeds from Honduras and Honduras to get seeds from the United States. And that's a pretty – should be a pretty easy and good thing to do. And – because there's a lot of interdependence or, to say it another way, a lot of dependence in the world. I mean, the United States has one of the best seed banks in the world and one of the largest collections. But you know what? We have 5% of the world's wheat collection. And that's a huge collection for any one seed bank to have. But if I were to go to a wheat breeder or a wheat researcher and say with climate change and other things happening – How confident are you that you will never need the other 95%, (laughs) never need a single seed from that other 95%, that everything you're ever going to have and everything you ever want wheat to be in the United States can be fashioned from the 5% that we have in our seed bank? Well, of course, they're going to say that's ridiculous. We can't do that. So by definition, countries have to learn to cooperate. That's not easy for them to do. That definition. <laughs> right. And the 5% that we have in the U.S. and in, in the seed bank, that's 5% of wheat mm-hmm. varieties. Is it just wheat that is found in the U.S.? No, it's been sourced from all over the world. Where is that seed bank in it's the U.S.? It's in Fort Collins, Colorado. It's on the oh. campus of Colorado State University. Yeah. So you mentioned that the, the U.N. crop diversity assessment led to the idea of an international seed bank. And so let's talk about the International Seed Bank, the Svelbard Global Seed Vault, which opened um, about eight years ago, I guess. That's right. Why Norway? There are a couple of really logical answers, and then there are a couple of really uh, (laughs) sort of things that involve accidents and serendipity. So um, 
One of them was that um, uh, Norway was a trusted country in this field. Trusted by whom? By by the other countries in the world. Uh, we had had all these rancorous debates, but Norway was sort of in the middle. They they always tend to look for solutions and try to get countries together. They have that sort of attitude internationally. So they were trusted by a lot of countries. And um, there's some cold places in Norway, and there are even some remote places. And we, we wanted to find a location that was very secure, and part of that was remote, um, away from the dangers of the normal world. But it had to be uh, accessible. We had to be able to get seeds in and out. And it had to be really cold, and we wanted it to be naturally cold because even though we wanted to freeze the seeds down to the optimal temperature, which in this case is about minus 3, we didn't want to start at plus 70. (laughs) We wanted to start, if possible, at minus something or or rather, well, below freezing uh, Fahrenheit um, so that if equipment failed, the seeds would remain frozen just naturally. So that zeroed us in on Norway. The Nordic Seed Bank had had stored some seeds up there as an experiment, so the idea was in the in the uh, in the air. And I was I was living in Norway. Uh, I was on the faculty of a university there. Um, it's a small country, and uh, I mean my entire field globally is small, but you narrow it down to Norway, it's really small. So I knew everybody. Everybody knew me. I knew people in the government. So. The advantage for for Norway was a little bit personal in that I knew that I could at least get them to seriously consider the idea, whereas in other countries, at at a high level, I could get them to consider it, whereas in other countries, I could spend my life working my way up to bureaucracy before somebody said no. So, Norway. (laughs) How many unique seed samples are in the vault in, in the Svelbard vault? We have um, there are kind of two different answers to that. You could say we have about 880,000 unique samples. We sent about 30 back just last year to the first country that needed to withdraw them um, because of loss of their, of their collection. Um, but those seeds will eventually be multiplied and come back to us again. So on the registry, I guess you would say 880,000. And that's a my gosh, um, you know, that's a big number. And so if you walk in there, the two biggest collections are of rice and wheat. We just simply by accident happen to have almost the exact same number of each crop. We have 154,000 different varieties of rice and 154,000 different varieties of, of wheat and then thousands of varieties of other things, including a lot of crops that you and I have never heard of before. I look at the list every once in a while and um, the list of crops runs about 55 or 60 pages long. Wow. So if you think of just sitting down one day and writing down the names of all the crops that you can think of, I don't know, maybe you get to the end of a page, or maybe if you're really into food, you get to the end of two pages, but you're not going to get to the end of 60. So uh, it's a lot of crops that we've never heard of before. And it's a it's a way, it's a library of life, it's a history of agriculture, and it's everything that's going to be in the future. Have, do you have duplicate seeds from every seed bank in the world that you know of? No, uh, we don't. We have seeds from uh, virtually every country. 
uh, in other words, they were originally sourced from uh, 233 countries, I believe. But um, there, there's a lot of you know transaction cost involved in negotiating and explaining how the system is going to work with every seed bank in the world. And a lot of seed banks at this stage um, are themselves not not carrying much unique material. So we we really have concentrated on the the big seed banks, the major ones, even and some of the smaller ones, which have a lot of unique diversity. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Trish Curley, and our guest today is Carrie Fowler. Eight years ago, while executive director of the Global Crop Diversity Trust, Fowler was instrumental in establishing the largest seed bank in the world in Norway. Fowler's work, and that of the Svelbard Global Seed Vault, is the subject of a documentary film entitled Seeds of Time, which was directed by Sandy McLeod and released in 2013. I want to ask you to talk in some detail about two significant sources of seeds for the vault in Svelbard. One is the Consultation Group on International Agricultural Research in Mexico, and the other is the Vavilov Institute in Russia. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the, uh, I'm just going to call it the research group in Mexico for sh- short, I guess. Um, what is that organization and what's the significance of it to the Svelbard vault? Well, the the consultative group on international agricultural research is a collection of um, a consortium of of international agricultural research centers. Each of them semi independent, and they're located different places around the world. The one that's in Mexico focuses on maize, corn, and and wheat, and um, others focus on particularly on usually on different crops there's a center in peru that works on uh, potatoes sweet potatoes and andean root and tuber crops um, there was one that used to be in syria that worked on wheat barley lentils chickpea and one of my favorite co- crops called grass pea and so uh, they're different centers and they work on on different crops they typically have the best and the biggest uh, collections of, of diversity of these crops and they're international centers, um, meaning that they, they see themselves serving an international public good. So they, they provide access to this diversity to anybody and everybody that, that calls wanting it. So in a sense, they are the most important collections for us uh, globally, for global agriculture. They're usually the first stop that a researcher or plant breeder will go to to get, get seeds for testing. And when the Svelbard vault was opened, were seeds from that uh, group the first contributors to the the vault in Norway? Yeah, they were. They they were well. In fact, um, I was working part time with them and went to the group of of seed bank managers um, of that group and said said, well, you know, let's propose to Norway that we. We uh, look into the feasibility of establishing something up there. So they were they were very much on board uh, with this idea, and they put their seeds in first day. And as did two other countries, by the way. I'll mention Kenya and Pakistan, which were basically knocking on the door opening day, wanting their seeds to go in. We worked with them to make sure that that their seeds got up there. And um, if you go back eight years and look at what was happening in Kenya, there were uprisings, a lot of civil strife going on in, in Kenya, same thing in Pakistan. And those 
uh, gene bank managers really wanted to get their material safety duplicated outside of the country at that mm-hmm. time. And that, that, that shows you what the seed vault is for. That's why we exist. Do you does the Svelbard Vault now have duplicates of all of the CGIRA seeds? We have certainly from every institute. It's a continual process of moving more seeds in. So there's still more from those institutes to come. Sometimes, you know, their sample size that they have in their gene bank is is kind of small. So what they have to do is they have to take seeds out and grow them and get more seed in order to supply us with a duplicate copy. And they just have so much capacity in a given year to grow out what can be thousands of varieties. And some of them have to be put in little cages so they don't cross-pollinate and various things like that. It gets complicated and expensive. Who was uh, Nikolai Vavilov? Well, he's the, he's the hero of our field. He's a Russian scientist. He made the first international collections. I mean, he went all over the world collecting crop diversity. He understood that it was, uh, this is in the teens and 1920s, he started. And he came up with a theory of centers of, of origin, centers of diversity of our domesticated crops. So he was the one that really figured out where some of our crops originated, were domesticated. And he, he reasoned in a nutshell that where you found the most diversity of a particular crop was where it had had the most time to evolve and create that diversity, and that's where it, it originated. That wasn't always the case for all crops, but by and large, that's, that's how it functions. So if you wanted to collect and you needed to collect diversity for your breeding program of a particular crop, well, his work told you where to go to, get, to find it. Um, you, didn't, you didn't go to India to find uh, diversity of potatoes. You went to the Andes. That's where potatoes are from, for example. He had a tragic um, life at the end. He was a geneticist. I think he'd gotten elected as the head of the International Genetics Association. I think that was the name in those days. But he ran afoul of Stalin and Lysenko, and Stalin thought Stalin was not a proponent of genetics. He, like Lysenko, believed in the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Which means what? Well, for Stalin, it meant that uh, if you established a Soviet state, a socialist state in the Soviet Union, that the offspring of those citizens would sort of be born that way, (laughs) born Mm -hmm. socialist. And Lysenko thought if you just chopped off the tails of, of rats and bred them, you, you would get tailless rats in the next um, – I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying it a little bit, and that's sort of an extreme uh, example, but they were not geneticists. And so uh, Vavilov, uh, who had up until that point really done more, was probably the most respected agricultural scientist in the world, an important theorist, a person whose work – still guides ours today, was arrested as an enemy of the Soviet state. And he was put in prison. And the irony was that he died in prison of starvation, um, having done so much to prevent starvation effectively. But the story goes on because he had amassed these large collections which were located in um, what is now the Vavilov Institute in um, St. Isaac's Square in St. Petersburg, then Leningrad. And during the siege of Leningrad, this is 900 days, uh, when the city was surrounded by Nazis, bombarded. 
several hundred thousand people starved to death in uh, Leningrad, St. Petersburg then. People were reduced to eating dirt and um, – well, it was a terrible situation. And there in the Vavilov Institute, they were sitting on large quantities of seed. But they were, as they explained to me when I visited in 1985, they were students of Vavilov. And when I went in 85, one of the things that I really wanted to do is I wanted to just from a human standpoint figure out what was happening in this building during the siege of Leningrad. Because what was not happening was they were not eating those seeds. <laughs> and the staff was collectively starving to death. In fact, the curator of the rice collection, he had a large rice collection, died of starvation with bags of rice sitting on his desk. He died at his desk <laughs> with bags of rice on the desk. And I remember, um, I mean, it's an emotional thing to understand what people went through why did they do that? Well, intellectually they did it because this, this woman explained to me, we thought the world was going up in fire, in flames, and what we have in this building was going to rescue the world, was going to reestablish agriculture after this, this awful event of World War II. And as I probed a little bit more and got her to talk more about that history, she, she looked at me and she said, but you have to understand, we were students of Vavilov. <laughs> So the immense uh, emotional power that this man had and uh, of his followers and either I think 12 or 13 of them died um, during that period of time, mostly of starvation-related uh, diseases and factors. And I guess it really um, brought home to me, frankly, that my gosh – here are people that understood, like we should today, the importance of this diversity and conserving it. And they were willing to give their lives for it. We're not being asked to give our life for it. We live in a much more comfortable situation. Nobody's asking us to starve to death to save this resource. So aren't we willing to conserve it? Aren't we willing to do what needs to be done to conserve it? It's not going to cost us our lives to do that. So that I came out of those meetings. I was already fairly driven and passionate about this subject, but I came out of those meetings thinking, among other things, I'm not giving up. It would, you know, dishonor this history. <laughs> um, so um, I think it's still if, – if you work in my field and you want to make a pilgrimage, you make a pilgrimage to St. Petersburg to the Vavilov Institute. When you went 30 years ago – what was the state of the institute, and what, what, uh, in particular, was the state of the seeds in the bank? It was it was pretty miserable. The institute itself is in a grand old building, but virtually nothing has changed since the day Vavilov himself walked out. In fact, they took me to his office and said, "Sit down at his desk," which I thought was. <laughs> Ooh, I don't think I want to do that. Um, but it was like he had just walked out. And um, seeds were – the seeds themselves were being stored in ambient conditions, which is not, not great, subject to temperature fluctuations from winter to summer. Uh, there wasn't a computer in sight. Um, there wasn't one in sight until a couple of years ago. It was 
it was miserably funded and, and frankly still is. Are there seeds from the Vevelov Institute that are now in the vault in uh, yes. Norway? Yes. 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 Okay. Mm-hmm. And what's your continued relationship with Vevelov Institute? Well, it's um, on a personal level, I have a close relationship with them, um, but it's a, it's it's not easy to to work with with Russia, even with my friends there. Um, my closest friend there, who's a friend for decades, uh, died um, about a year ago. And was really the person who was running the institute, and I, I sort of fear for the future of the institute now. But you know, you have to realize that there are strange politics that go on in this world, and and um, one of the dynamics of safety duplicating in Svalbard, from the vantage point of somebody at the Vavilov Institute, for example, or a number of other gene banks, is that. If they send a duplicate copy up to Svalbard, yeah, that's great for the world. It's great for the seeds. It's great for everything, except in some countries there can be a situation where a policymaker up high says, well, why should we fund your institute here in, at the Vavilov Institute? Why should we worry about giving you any money and upgrading your facilities and making seeds safe here in St. Petersburg? when you've already sent it up to Svalbard, and we know it's completely safe up there. So there are some institutional dynamics where you can undercut your institution or you can perceive that you might undercut your institution by safety duplicating in Svalbard. So the politics can be complicated, and we we have to work through different emotions and different political situations and different technical and scientific uh, situations with every single gene bank that we work with. And so diplomacy is a huge part of your job. Diplomacy is a big part of it. <laughs> You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm speaking with Carrie Fowler, a senior advisor to the Global Crop Diversity Trust. My understanding is that you and your colleagues had a particular vision of the Svelbard Seed Vault when it was first conceived, which was free access for all. Is that correct? Well, not not exactly. We um, there there is an international treaty that sort of mandates facilitated access for everybody from the holder, but we we had to work through that problem because we we realized that having a sustainable, economically viable, sustainable seed vault near the North Pole meant that we couldn't just be going up there all the time and sending seeds to anybody and everybody that requested them. It would be, for instance, if you're a researcher in the United States, you should really be requesting seed from the National Gene Bank here in the United States or maybe from one of these other institutes somewhere in the the quote-unquote real world, not going up to the North Pole to get your seeds. That would be very uneconomical, and we just couldn't financially support that. But we wanted the depositors, by and large, to be committed themselves to providing that access. So even though we don't give out seeds to anyone other than the depositor, it works like a safety deposit box at the bank where you own the seeds that you sent up there and you and you alone have access to them. We don't give the U.S. seeds to Canada if um, they only go back to the United States if the U.S. loses its seed collection. But on the other hand, that collection itself in Fort Collins, Colorado, is open to the public. 
you were involved in the civil right. You were involved in civil rights demonstrations in Memphis in the 1960s. I read. Yes, I'm that old. <laughs> Do you think of yourself as an activist, as an agricultural ag- activist, as an environmental activist? Um, I I don't anymore. I guess uh, I certainly was. I certainly was for many years, and I have. I have strong enough views on a few subjects to to count as being as being an activist, but when I worked for the UN and and before, part of the reason I was probably invited to work at the UN was I think I was moving in the direction of not being simply an advocate or being let's say a critic of certain systems and saying this is wrong and you ought to correct it, you ought to do better, you ought to do this, that, or the other. I was really beginning inside me to be more interested in trying to solve the problems rather than tell other people to solve them and actually have my hands involved in solving them. And and to be in that uncomfortable situation, and this is what happens, of making some of the decisions and the trade-offs because when you – when you get involved in doing something like the Seed Vault or starting an international organization and working with 90 countries, a lot of political correctness flies out of the window and things may look like you should have done this, that, or the other in hindsight, but you have to make those decisions in real time and you have to take the consequences. And And I, I wanted to try to listen to other people and listen to countries and try to fashion a system that worked for everybody. I wanted to try to bring people together. I was tired of complaining. I was tired of watching bad things happen to crop diversity, and I wanted to solve some of the problems um, that I was getting upset about. And I'd spent a couple of decades hammering away (laughs) at the powers that be, but now I wanted to and I didn't know that hammering away for another couple of decades was going to <laughs> going to solve the problem. So I wanted to try to take the steering wheel in my hand just a little bit. I read that you thought that seed saving was going to take six months, and that was 30 years ago? Yes, more yeah. or less. <laughs> in 2012, you transitioned from being the executive director of the Global Crop Diversity Trust to a senior advisor position. You remarried. And the film Seeds of Time, about you and the Svelbard Seed Vault, was released shortly thereafter. How has your role with the trust changed uh, now that you're the senior advisor versus the executive director? How is that different? I don't have any staff. Oh. <laughs> so it seems like the biggest change in my life uh, from... Uh, is it a promotion or a demotion? I can't... <laughs> I'm not sure. I'll probably live longer now. Uh, but... Um, I'm as busy as I was before, but I don't have to deal with the day-to-day things. I do have a lot of uh, responsibility. I, I head the, I chair the advisory council that oversees the seed vault in Svalbard, so I, I have my hands involved with that, and I do a number of other things. But um, but I'm not on quite on the front lines. Um, I stepped back from that because it was just time to to step back and do some other things and and allow a different kind of transition to take place. The trust funds the seed vault in Norway, but that's only about – it's less than 2 percent of the trust's budget. That's right. Yeah. So I know it's taken us a long time to get to the subject. What else does the trust do? Well, historically, we've worked in about 90 different countries. We, we've done a lot of research to find out where the unique diversity is located, 
both in seed banks and out in the wild still. And we went to those seed banks and partnered with them to rescue that diversity. In many cases, the germination rate of their samples was falling precipitously and to the point of near extinction, basically. So we we rescued during my period there about 90,000 different crop varieties. Um, I think it was um, certainly one of the, one of the biggest. Uh, it's been described as the biggest biological rescue program in history. Uh, the trust is now involved in looking for finding, collecting the um, remaining diversity in the field in the wild relatives of our domesticated crops because we we realize that looking forward to climate change, we're going to need different traits in our agricultural crops. They're really going to have to deal better with, obviously, with high heat, longer periods of heat, heat at inconvenient times such as flowering, all these kinds of things, but also a lot more fluctuation in our climate like we're seeing today. And what kind of crops, what kind of plants deal pretty well with all those things? Well, they're the wild plants that we don't even take care of. And we have many wild relatives of our domesticated crops. So the trust is involved uh, actually working with uh, the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew in in the U.K. to search out these little pockets where these, these particular plants grow and collect them and to eventually move them into the plant breeding programs. We've been working on software systems and database systems and things like that, and we've been working with um, a number of, of gene banks. What we really want to do is to provide security for these collections. I, you know, I tell people that it, if this is the most valuable natural resource on Earth, and I think it is, that and it's it's always going to be that essentially, as long as we want to have agriculture that conserving it 49 out of the next 50 years is not quite good enough. It's really going to have to be 50 out of the next 50. Well, how do you do that in the modern world with governments being as fickle as they are and changing politics all the time? Well, you do that through an endowment, uh, through having funds that are invested conservatively that generate a certain amount of money That's so that – Gene banks will have a, a clear, secure operating budget so they can conserve the stuff 50 out of the next 50 and 100 out of the next 100 years. So part of what I was doing and what the, the trust still is doing is raising money for that, for that endowment. What do you want to make sure you do before you stop doing what you're doing? Before I check out? Before you check out. <laughs> I read that you are a two-time cancer survivor. Yeah. And you're in your late 60s. Yep. And I'm I'm interested to know what you mm-hmm. want your legacy to be as you end your end your career. Uh not, a, not anytime soon. Well, I, I, I I'm sure, but who knows. <laughs> I'm I'm happy with the seed vault. Uh, my my happiest days are down there with those collections. I feel very good when I'm there. So that's 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 fine. I'm happy with my kids. Uh, they make me proud. If I had one more thing to do, I guess, I'm, I'm very concerned about the, what I think is the lack of, of ability of all but the f- top five or six crops in the world to adapt to climate change. I'm very worried about climate change. It's, we, we see the effects of climate change already in our agricultural systems, 
politicians might want to debate about whether it's happening and what's causing it. But the but the plants in the field are in the front lines and we're experiencing it. They are experiencing it and farmers know that and agricultural scientists know that. We don't have plant breeders for a lot of our crops. And what does that mean? What are our assumptions about how yams or pick any other crop that's not wheat, rice, <laughs> corn, um, soybeans, pick any of the other crops and ask yourself, how is it that they're going to adapt to climates, environments that have not existed since pre-agricultural days? <laughs> these are crops that their genetic makeup has not experienced these kinds of climates ever. Do we really think that they're going to be automatically adapted? And are all of our surprises going to be good surprises? They're going to yield more in these fluctuating and hotter climates? No. So what's going to happen? We don't live by bread alone. We don't live by wheat, maize, rice, soybeans alone. We live also by vegetables, by some of the legumes, um, by a wide diversity of crops. And we, as an international community, are not prepared for helping those crops adapt to what's coming or even what's already here. So what would I like to do? I would like to re-envisage the role of seed banks in the world, and I would like to suggest that maybe globally we might want to think about doing what we actually did in the United States in the 1800s, which was um, engage in a wide-scale distribution of seeds to farmers. Here I'm talking about mostly in the developing countries with subsistence farmers, um, to give them the kind of diversity that they will need to help their crops adapt successfully to whatever comes in the future. Um, without that diversity, we know from Charles Darwin in 1859, uh, there is no such thing as evolution without diversity. And so those farmers need diversity just as our farmers needed it, and they'll use it in, in the way that our farmers did by experimenting and playing with their crops. And I think that's going to be necessary or we're going to be looking at, at some real um, upheavals and food insecurity, particularly in the developing countries. This is Trish Curley for Profiles. I've been speaking today with Carrie Fowler. Thanks so much for being with us. It was a real sure. pleasure. Thank you. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer, the studio engineer, and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.